I have a reservation in one of your deluxe cabins under Ariel Lavery. Last fall, I visited a lake out in eastern Tennessee in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. I'm park right now that are paying $950 a month because they're in the, in the area looking for a home, building a home, sold my house. I mean, and I stayed at this campground filled with RVs. But then, you know, the, the housing market, I mean, you know, I had a guy in here that was local and he uh, sold his house. They offered him $10 more thousand dollars to get out that day. Wow. He took it. And one of the things I noticed almost immediately was that there has been a long, long history in this area of people being displaced for the benefit of others. Oh, wow. What's creating this sudden sense of urgency? Well, it's the booming real estate market. People are moving in from the coasts. There's these very expensive lots that are getting more expensive by the day. There's this interesting mix of mansions and modular homes in the area. And when you tour around this lake, you see these really eerie sights, like statues that disappear into the water. I saw part of an old bridge that dropped down below the surface. And there are silos all over the place that stick out of the middle of this lake. Jumping off the silos, what people do. People use these markers of history today for recreation. Jump! Woo! Oh, we went backwards. Whoa! <laughs> oh man, it's kind of crazy to see this brick silo coming up like 20 feet out of the water. Yeah. And when you learn the story behind these silos, it might give you pause before climbing on them. Kind of like you would the gravestones in a graveyard. Right, because those silos used to belong to families, to farmers. That's right. These silos hold stories of something that happened to these family farmers 50 years ago when they tried to defend their land and their way of life. Because it was either go to jail or not resist but say, here, have it. Up until the 1950s, the valley that used to be here was one of the largest single swaths of undeveloped rural land in the country. The people who lived here often had large families, where the oldest children would help raise the youngest. They lived in small farmhouses they built, and they farmed the land. The land was richer than I'd ever seen up north. I mean, 15 feet deep of grade A USDA soil, just just unbelievable. After a rain in the plowed fields, there would be arrowheads and pieces of pot shard. You know, it, it was an amazing place. This valley was home to what has been described as the heart of the Cherokee Nation before the Revolutionary War. Chota was the overhill town around which they organized. Chota was the capital. I spoke with several members of the Eastern Band of Cherokee, and I visited what is left of this capital. You can't get any more important than these sites here. It's now a memorial site with short pillars that suggest the townhouse that once stood and a grave marker for Oconestota, a chief of the 18th century. There is also a museum dedicated to Sequoia, who is one of the most important Cherokee in history. There's a replica of part of the Teleco blockhouse, which was a British Cherokee trading post, and a small memorial that remembers the original Cherokee overhill city in this valley, which is now underwater. That's Tanasi, right? That's right, Tanasi, the town for which the Tennessee River, the Tennessee Valley, and the state of Tennessee are all named. And the Little Tennessee River, which is the one that used to flow in the place of this lake. The river that is now impounded, forming the Teleco Reservoir. And I know the damming of this river was one of the Tennessee Valley Authority's most controversial projects. Yes. It was protested for over a decade. 
we knew that there was a great deal of opposition by the the residents there in the valley uh, to lose their lands that had been in their families for many generations. We lived in the area and had roots back to the Revolutionary War and beyond. We were invested deeply in the community. We were rooted, and it was a wonderful place to live. But the TVA had a huge vision for how they might help this valley catch up to 20th century modernity. Planners and people that think about the future always have this vision of a perfect town. Build a perfect new town. And they put out signs that said, building a better environment. So it was going to be a sort of an industrial boom, and then there was going to be housing developed for people that worked at these factories around the lake. At the same time, TBA was going to save the history. The early history of the British and Cherokee who occupied the valley. This was kind of a, a utopian vision of how uh, East Tennessee would be. But when the families that lived here realized how this was going to change their lives forever... That was my first horrible gasp of what is this going to do in my world. This story of the death of the Little Tennessee Valley and the formation of the Teleco Reservoir has been my obsession for the last eight months. It's a story about a community coming together while being ripped apart. You couldn't organize a fight. It's about the ways our environment can clue us into the destruction we unknowingly cause. They found an endangered species in the Teleco project. What is going wrong with the rivers? And what those clues can tell us about everything going on around us. Water reflects everything around it. History, politics, ecology, economics, humans and non-humans. Reflected in a river is a way of capturing the fact that this wasn't just one little case and how these news media, NBC and CBS, covered those clues. It was the little fish versus the big dam builders in the Supreme Court today, and the fish won for now. Well, I think that anybody that is stupid enough to let a little tadpole kill that Sergeant Colvard don't have no business in the Supreme Court. But as Bernard Goldberg reports, it looks as though the only casualties of Teleco are human beings. The title is Teleco Dam Battle. It's not just snail darter. The farmers knew it. For 19 years, they knew it. They did everything right. But a few held out, bitter that they had to leave against their will. The hell of a country. This is dimension after dimension after dimension. Coulda, shoulda, woulda is, is just heartbreaking to me. I can't let go of it. This is the story of Tanasi. This is the story about an epic battle to save the Little T. Over the next five episodes, we follow the story from an ancient fertile valley all the way to the Supreme Court. We talk to the few remaining people around who remember the valley as it once was. Today, we relive the foregone life of the Little Tennessee River, from the river's beginning to the rise and fall of the Cherokee, in part one of our series, Birth of a River. On Middle of Everywhere, sharing big stories from the small places we call home. I'm Austin Carter. And I'm Ariel Avery.
Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. Rivers are both ancient and ever-evolving. So how do we begin to tell the life story of a single one? Let me just take you on a journey and start with some description of the river. The Little Tennessee is not a river to be taken for granted. This text is from the book Valley So Wild by Alberta and Carson Brewer. In it, they describe a river that is older than the land and saws through the rising mountains of Appalachia. The peaks of the Smokies once towered high above where they are today, with vegetation clinging to the barren rock faces and crevices between. The vegetation and animal life found here was largely spared the ravages of the ice and oceans that covered much of North America. Thus, the Little Tennessee has seen plant and animal life thrive here longer than most other rivers of our country. Season after season, and eon after eon, leaves came green in spring, turned gold in autumn, and fell to the forest floor by the billions of tons. Trees sprouted, grew large and old, and then fell in springtime gales, contributing to the deepening humus. Then came the people. In the Little Tennessee River Valley, we have an archeological record that goes back at least uh, 12,000 years. Artifacts uncovered and salvaged from the valley tell the story of early Paleo-Indian and archaic cultures that hunted and gathered the native flora and fauna. From there, the archeological record shows culture developing from small camps into small villages, domesticating plants, and the beginnings of burial practices. By 1000 AD, Mississippian cultures, which are known for building the large mounds in the Midwest, South, and Southeast, had developed into complex uh, social and political organization that we, we generally refer to as uh, chiefdoms. And then it was those Mississippian period chiefdoms that were first encountered by the early Spanish explorers. This is our Cherokee archaeological expert for the Little Tennessee Valley, Gerald Schrodel. I am a professor emeritus at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee. Gerald grew up with an interest in indigenous peoples. Before the Dalles Dam was built on the Columbia River, uh, you could stop and watch Indian people fish at Salila Falls. He went on to study and get a degree in archaeology and was hired to help excavate at the Teleco project. So as a student uh, and, you know, having some knowledge of American history, I had heard of the TVA. I became aware in 60, it must have been 68, somewhere in there, that TVA was building this reservoir, but other than that, I didn't know much about it. My initial view was I got a job. Somebody's going to pay me to do archaeology, and that's what I'd been trained to do. This project yielded some of the most important evidence from a single excavation of early peoples living in North America. And then out of those Mississippian cultures, emerged uh, by the sometime in the 16th, 17th centuries, uh, the historically known Native American uh, tribal groups that are recorded in history. So like the Cherokee and the Creeks and, uh, and other Native people in the Southeast. Water 
is a source of cleansing and ritual and spiritual power. The Little Tennessee River was a sacred source of life and spirituality. Amongst the Cherokee, they have a what we would uh, call a ceremony or ritual called going to water, which Cherokee people continue to do to this day. This is like us brushing our teeth or taking a morning shower. They do this as a matter of, of habit and importance to their spiritual and personal well-being. And then they did this for other purposes. So for example, undertaking any kind of risky activities as part of the preparation for warfare and for stickball games and so forth was to go to water. Another situation that people would go to water is if this was part of a healing, if a person was sick or ill, and they were consulting a, uh, a medicine man, undoubtedly part of the ceremony or part of the ritual of curing was to take the patient to water. And the river had an identity for the Cherokee. The river itself was a spirit, is known as, a, as the long man. And uh, the long man's head was in the mountains, his feet were where the water eventually flowed uh, into the ocean. So part of the ritual of going to water was to pray to or ask for the assistance of long man or the river. The river was key to the Cherokee's existence. Life depends on water, period. In eastern Tennessee, the Cherokee are referred to as Overhill Cherokee. When the first British diplomats entered into the Overhill country, they went to talk to the headman or the chief at Tanasi. Tanasi was the capital at the time, where people from all the surrounding towns would gather to discuss and make collective decisions. And then sometime around probably uh, 1740, 1750, you see in the historical record that pretty soon people then start talking about, we're going to Chota, we're going to Chota, and you see less or fewer and fewer references to Tanasi. So something happened in probably the 1730s or thereabouts where Chota eclipsed Tanasi. These capitals were defined in part by a central townhouse. A townhouse is kind of like the combination of a, a town hall, a community center, and a church all rolled into one. So anything of any importance, uh, uh, any kind of decision making, took place in the townhouse. The best townhouse descriptions are, for example, uh, when Lieutenant Henry Timberlake visited the Overhill towns in the mid-18th century, in 1761-62. Henry Timberlake was a colonial officer and cartographer who first mapped the Little Tennessee River Valley and all the Cherokee towns he encountered. He describes a townhouse. Part of what we learn there is that these are extremely big buildings, 60 feet in diameter, and they are clearly octagonal buildings. They're eight-sided buildings. And then they have a large central hearth area where the sacred fire was kept burning. There are seven separate seating areas in these buildings. For each of the seven Cherokee clans. Clans were matrilineal and exogamous. These clans are basically the source of uh, the judicial process. As the British come into the valley in larger numbers, the values of the Cherokee people changes. As these towns were subject to uh, uh, European assaults through disease and warfare and so forth. Some of these towns were completely abandoned. Sometimes they were rebuilt elsewhere. 
Uh, sometimes the population of one town moved to another town, so we would have a refugee populations. And so over time, Cherokee people who had more power or more influence with respect to warfare tended to become more and more powerful. In Cherokee culture, there were so-called red chiefs or war chiefs, and there were so-called white chiefs or peace chiefs. And over time, those war chiefs took on greater and greater uh, influence in Cherokee culture because of the uh, conflicts and the increased interaction uh, with the British. By the end of the Revolutionary War, 1794, the Cherokee people were on the verge of extinction. After the Revolutionary War, the population rebounded to around 16,000. Then, of course, along comes the removal. Most of the remaining Cherokee are removed and marched along the horrifying Trail of Tears, where the native people living in the eastern United States were forced to walk hundreds of miles to U.S.-designated Indian territory. And then of those 16,000 people, 8,000 of them died on the trail or as a direct result of having been removed. By uh, 1819, uh, essentially all of the Cherokee towns on Little Tennessee uh, were no longer occupied. It's recorded that there was only one old man living at Choda. In the early 19th century, uh, Cherokee people began to worry about losing their culture. And one of the things that they could do then, of course, was to write things down. In the face of the disappearing culture of the Cherokee people, one man creates a system of symbols for the Cherokee to communicate with. Sequoia, of course, was uh, one of the most famous indigenous uh, native people in all of history because he invented the Sequoia syllabary he was keenly aware and impressed by the fact that white people could write things down and send messages to one another. And so he wanted the Cherokee people to, to be able to do that. Sequoia was raised by his Cherokee mother and was inspired at an early age by the practices of the English. He watched as the British used language and symbols to track trade and goods and communicate through newspapers. After 12 years of toil in developing his syllabary, and he brought it to uh, Cherokee leaders. There was a lot of debate over what was this and what should we do with this because some Cherokees thought this was witchcraft. Some people thought this was of divine, some kind of divine origin that, you know, he'd gotten some kind of special spiritual power to develop this. Sequoia's syllabary was eventually adopted. Then Europeans, particularly early missionaries, began to use the syllabary. They published the Cherokee Phoenix in English and in the syllabary. So a Cherokee person, even totally illiterate in English, could get a newspaper. And today you can see the syllabary at the Sequoia Birthplace Museum at Teleco Reservoir. Ink balls, I'm spreading the ink evenly on the ink ball, and then I would take the ink ball. In fact, I was even given a copy of one freshly printed syllabary off their antique letterpress. Wow, I'd love to know what that looked like. Yeah, it was pretty neat. A very heavy looking solid steel frame around the printing apparatus with a kind of runway for the plate and a huge lever.
And then you have your beautiful serving. You know, there's so much history for the Cherokee in this one place, this little Tennessee River Valley. So how much of that history that you just recounted really felt present when you were out there? Well, I guess it's sort of present in the way most of our history is present today, through museums and memorials. There's a replica of Fort Loudon because the original site is underwater. There's a replica of part of the Teleco blockhouse, and the original foundation is there, which is pretty cool. The memorials to Chota and Tanasi are out of the way a bit and understated, but they're quiet and they overlook where the river once flowed. Yet perhaps the most real feeling of history I got while I was there was from the remnants that still stick up out of the lake. The silos and that old bridge descending into the water. They're kind of like the ghosts of the past, I guess. And we're going to hear from a couple of the people who remember when those silos were not being used as diving apparatuses, but rather to hold the fruits of the soil in this valley. And I am so bent on getting this story out so people can see and hear and know that there are people in this neck of the woods that lived here and they don't know what happened. That's coming up in the next episode of our series, The Story of Tanasi. You can find images of Teleco Reservoir with the silos sticking out of the lake and other things we talked about on our website at middleofeverywherepod.org or on Instagram and Facebook at middleofeverywherepod and Twitter at rural underscore stories. If you want to be even more involved in the conversation, sign up for our newsletter so you'll always be the first to know about new episodes and interesting things going on at WKMS and in our region. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Ariel Avery, with editorial help from my co-host, Austin Carter. Our editor is Naomi Starobin. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Thank you to our intern, Annie Davis, who has done much-needed fact-checking. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.